the teaching of uh, the Buddha and I perhaps you could say all wisdom traditions uh, point to the possibility of of freedom possibility of letting go of the many ways that uh, we can feel restricted, constricted, bound by our circumstances, bound by ideas, bound by notions of uh, what we can do or what we can't do, and on many, many dimensions of our being, uh, liberate ourselves, be free from, from uh, confusion and constraints. And one of the most accessible, uh, accessible sources of freedom, the most accessible source of freedom, is the very nature of your mind, the very nature of your awareness as you sit here. The one in you that knows, or that in you that knows, that... that that primordial presence that you are, that unconditional, that unconditioned awareness. The source of freedom is none other than, than your own mind. Your own innate beauty. It's right here. And easily overlooked. And the way that we can recognize that is by simply being aware. Maybe even being aware of being aware. And notice what that being aware of being aware is like when you're simply aware and you are not, um, not looking back into the past, as I call it, not consulting your memory, and you're not looking ahead into the imagined future, you're simply here and knowing that you're here. Not defining yourself in any way based on memory. So to do this, you, you may just sense already that you're not as bad as you thought you were you may realize almost instantaneously that when you don't look back and you don't look ahead, you, you feel whole, enough, even a kind of sweetness, that there's plenty of room, plenty of space. But there's no trick involved here. All this is is a moment of suspending or being without what we would normally walk around with and not even know that we're walking around with, some, some view, some thought, and a feeling that goes with it of being constricted, of being bound. Even the thought, I'm a man or I'm a woman, even though it has a relative truth, it speaks to our situation, I'm whatever, whatever it is, our role, This thought, if it goes unnoticed, unrecognized, as just a view, 
becomes a constricting. I'd say one of the most common views that, especially in this land of, call it the land of hungry ghosts, the land of beings with little mouths and huge stomachs, a land where our sense of well-being is so much dependent on acquisition, on hunger, on satisfying thirst, on getting somewhere, on becoming someone, on, on, uh, on uh, desire. In a world like this, the common, there's a common little sub-thought that says something like, I am lacking. You could say the very definition of, as one of my colleagues says, the definition of the hindrance of desire is lack. And why is this considered a hindrance? It's considered a hindrance because it blinds us, it hinders our primordial, our true nature, our true freedom, our natural freedom. And it all starts with, at least in this case, with three words. I'm lacking. Any of you relate to the thought I'm lacking? Is it just me? (laughs) I'm lacking three words. And if if I believe that I'm lacking, if I... if I incarnate in the thought I'm lacking, my body feels constricted. As I often speak about on Tuesday night, um, I feel when I'm constricted that I I am, my well-being, my happiness is suspended. And I've got to I have to search somehow, because I love myself, I've got to go search a way to, to, to heal that feeling of lack. And what's everyone tell me to do? They tell me to go shopping. Tell me to take some kind of intoxicant. Tell me to, uh, to keep moving. Or tell me to get lost in thought, which makes me further spin out in in my fantasies of how I'm going to fill my lack. But what does that do to my lack? It increases the sense of conviction that that, those three words, those three words encompass the, in some ways, the the core of my being. I'm lacking. You take those three words, this is what I've I've always enjoyed doing this, I take those three words that, that when, I, when go unnoticed lead to such a profound drama of searching and seeking, I take those three words and really look at them rather than, because I'm all bound up, rather than going into, the, um, going into therapy to try to figure out why I'm lacking, even though that's a very important element of my, of my um, Inquiry. It's really important sometimes to look at what it is that gave, what was the engine that drove this feeling of lack? Where did I get that from? How did it start? Who, what, what did they say to me? Or what, what, did, what was I deprived of? Or whatever it is. 
Unfortunately, that kind of search, historically, even though it, it has a certain kind of value, it does not, it doesn't strike, it doesn't really question the belief itself, the idea itself. I'm lacking. I'm bound. So what we do meditatively is we look at a thought as a thought. I am lacking. We see what that thought's made of. It has such a tremendous power. I'm lacking and the feeling that goes with that. But then when we really look at it and look to see how it happens, what its source is, not its source in the historical past, but how does it emerge in the present? I'm lacking. I'm I need something. I can't do something. I shouldn't be somewhere. I, whatever the version is, I'm not enough. Anybody have one here that they'd like to share? Last time I asked a group, it was, I'm not competent, I'm not uh, employed enough, or I'm not uh, strong enough, or whatever it was. I said, well, some of these things are true in terms of our situation but they often get they they often get taken to be an absolute fact about our deepest nature and the teachings remind us that that you are not you are not um, definable by a thought a thought is just a thought a thought of your mother is not your mother a thought of yourself is not yourself. So what we do meditatively is we look at the nature of those three words. I am lacking. I am not enough. I am lost. I am stuck. I am whatever it is. And we, we really look directly at what that's made of. And we just start playing with it a little bit. We trace it back to where, how it emerges in the present moment. So we get rid of it. Let's say I'm, I, I'm lacking. We remove the lack from the sentence. And then we're left with the feeling of I am. I am. And I know whenever I remove the whatever the characterization is and I'm left with the sense of I am, I already feel better. There's nothing wrong with I am. Whatever. I feel great already. But just for the sake of, of the inquiry, we just keep unraveling it. And we get rid of the am. So we're, there's, there's I'm lacking, we remove the lacking, we remove the am. And then for the sake of our conversation... We, uh, we just remove the I. And we discover ourselves prior to that idea. And then, what do we realize then? Anybody willing to say what you notice after the I is gone? What's that? Emptiness? Anything else? There's no thought to define us. No thought to define us. But if you were to try to put words on that, what? How you feel? Heavy. Space. Spacious. Free. 
introspective. Lack of ego. Lack of ego. Anybody notice lack of problem? And all we did was, for a moment, again, we suspended the, what we would call our, our view about ourselves. So then we can begin to taste and sense that, um, that we're not, there's really no evidence for our being bound, for being not enough, being lacking in the, in the immediate present. That in order to feel bound, we have to somehow be shrouded in, in memory. We have to be, we have to be, um, have to be going to the past to define ourselves. You know what the poet, or the, yeah, the poet Hafez said about the past. He says, what he, in his poem called uh, something about stop being so religious says what do people who are sad have in common they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship what is the beginning of happiness it's to stop being so religious like that as my teacher Punjaji used to say, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. So the practice of meditation, you may not realize it on Tuesday night, but the practice of meditation is, uh, is introducing you to this natural freedom that gets obscured by the idea, I'm lacking. Reintroduces you to your natural beauty. And as Galway Canel put it, sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. And in a sense, practice does that organically. We reintroduce ourselves to our loveliness. And it, we begin to, we, we sense that our loveliness has a has the effect when we're in touch with that natural presence there is a a feeling of connection that's often lacking in the thought I'm lacking in fact in this as I sit here with you tonight and this often happens on Tuesday when I'm not looking back and I'm not looking ahead I start to feel very connected to you. I can't even find a dividing line between us. And I have the sense that, there, that the idea of us, of there being an us, or even two, is, doesn't make as much sense. And I think of the passage from Rumi, I think it's out beyond our ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there's a, there's a field I'll meet you there when the soul lies down in that grass the world is too full to talk about even the idea, oh I may be butchering this even the idea each other doesn't make any sense and all we did was 
for a moment suspend our cherished beliefs. So that's the good news. The good news of our practice is our our natural beauty, our true loveliness that is has that feeling of connection and limitlessness and is is not bound by anything. Uh, is here. It's now. It's available. Uh, should uh, it's accessible. And yet, most of us are, um, have the feeling, the persistent feeling, of being confined. I even was thinking tonight, this is just the many layers of how our conditioning operates. Tonight, I was sitting in my car before I came in the church, and the thought came, oh, I'm a little, I'm a little tired tonight. Okay, that thought's a, it's an innocuous thought. It was reflecting the way my body felt. I'm a little jet-lagged. I just flew from the East Coast after leading a retreat, and it's now quarter to 12 East Coast time, which I slowly acclimated to when I was there last week. And I was, so I started to slowly slide down the slope of incarnating as the tired one. And then I had the thought, oh, I have to give a Dharma talk. And then it dawned on me, that's just a conditioned idea, I have to give a Dharma talk. I don't really have to give a Dharma talk. But that, and that thought, I felt all, I felt pressure and I felt, I felt, uh, a kind of heavy, the heaviness increased and, and put, let me crawl in a little hole, whatever it was that went through my mind. And then I realized that's just an idea. And that part of our practice is to, is to make a shift from, from just being lost in those views to putting a, a, shining a bright light on whatever it is that we think we need to do. That was just a, an idea. We could do Q&A here. You could initiate the evening, and I could be, I could be the res- responder. We've done it before. But somehow I had the idea I'm supposed to be the one to initiate. And then we all collude in, in being conditioned in a certain way. And each of us has our own example of where we are, allow ourselves to be bound by ideas, by associations, by what our parents told us, by what our religions tell us, what our cultures tell us, what is a woman supposed to do, a guy supposed to do, all of these things. And so practice is meant to liberate us from, the, uh, from being bound by all these notions. And I can't necessarily say what, what it is that binds you. I have all kinds of things for myself that I think I'm supposed to do. But the more I am able to see a thought as a thought, and a thought of myself, or a thought of what I'm supposed to do is just a, just a suggestion instead of a, a command or a demand, then, I'm, then there's that space of choice. So I felt really liberated. I went, we had a little meeting before. I felt really liberated because I didn't actually think I had to give a talk after that. <laughs> and now it's kind of fun giving a talk. <laughs>
So we don't have to be everything. As Nisargadatta says, you don't need to correct yourself. Only, only get the idea of yourself correct. Or only get the, just see the ideas of yourself. Learn to separate yourself from the image in the mirror. Keep on remembering, I'm neither a mind or its ideas or its conditioning. Do it patiently and with conviction, and you will surely come to the, the, the direct vision of yourself as a source of being. Knowing, loving, eternal, all-embracing, all-pervading. You are the infinite, focused in a body. Now you see the body only. Try earnestly and you will come to see the infinite only. Because this idea, I'm somebody, is just a, it's just a, a view. And the somebody who is, is bound, the somebody who is lacking, somebody who should be different than the way you are. Any of you have that thought? Who says? Who says? That one who you imagine yourself to be that flows from this open field of, of presence, it describes somebody who doesn't even exist. It's a, it's a mental version of you. It's a virtual version. And you know what science says. I have this little statistic here with me tonight. After more than a century of looking at it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there's no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain and that it simply doesn't exist. <laughs> Yet we're, we're so busy defending, protecting, building, healing, liberating ourself. And as Wei Wei says, why are you so unhappy? Because 99.9% .9 of everything you do and think is for yourself. And there isn't one. <laughs> that doesn't mean that you're not here. You are here in full beauty. You are here in living color. But how do you put what you are here into words that could ever capture the glory, the mystery, the limitlessness of who you are? No one here is explainable. And yet we can reduce ourselves to these puny little identities. I'm lacking. Or I'm not enough. Or fall into the most insidious uh, version of the self-view, what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti. The most insidious is the comparing mind. Is I'm I'm better than, that's called Atimana. I think I talked about this recently. I'm equal to or I'm less than. And that just again describes somebody that doesn't exist. It's a, it's a virtual version of herself. It's so insulting when you are so uh, lovely in your nature. How, how, how insulting. How distorted. 
But we can talk about that all night unless we actually see it moment to moment, our conditioning playing out of how you should be, how you should be better, how you're less than or how you're better than. All these, all these very um, insecure notions of yourself because they're based on ideas. They don't... They don't. They have no substantiality. If I'm ha- trying to defend the idea that I'm better than somebody, you think that makes me stronger? It just makes me able to be flicked like a little idea. It's useless. And if I'm based on being less than, I might... I'm also... This is com- I feel terrible I'm less than. And if I'm constantly measuring to make sure I'm equal to, also insecure. And then if I think that I am my body, more insecurity because my body's aging. <laughs> Gets sick and it doesn't perform. I, I've been so amazed throughout my life at how those little viruses, little bacteria, big strong us, how we are absolutely vulnerable helpless in the face of a tiny little microorganism. Any pride that we have in health, any kind of pride that we have in our in identification with our bodies, it's nuts. We're crazy. So the Dharma, the teachings, the teachings ask us to pay attention to these things so that we're not lo- we're, we don't identify so much with our body. We don't take it personally when we get a virus. Don't take it personally when we get older. There could not be anything less personal than aging. Or sickness even. Or dying. Or or death. It's, it's, It's the definition of birth. Leading cause of death. Anyway. But as we notice, each of us, as we notice the ways that we bind ourselves and our thoughts and conditioning, we have to understand that it, it arises because of the way we've been related to. It arises because of the way we've been traumatized, we've shrunk, we've, we've been uh, just been... Mirror, our, the mirroring we've gotten has been all about our limitations very rare that we're mirrored in our true beauty and that's why we that's why the uh, attention to the simplicity of the moment why it's even showing itself in brain studies that it mimics the best qualities that get evoked when we're uh, when we're parented well because we're mirroring our innate beauty instead of mirroring our limitations and then we even bring that mirroring also, even when it meets our delusion, it meets it with kindness. We get no, oh, that, that's just an idea I have to give a Dharma talk. That's just an idea I'm less than that person. That's just an idea that I should be different than the way I am. And so we begin to see the difference between the ideas about ourselves, but we see it with a loving heart. We see the difference between the, the ourselves as we are and the ideas. 
And like Derek Walcott says in his poem, Love After Love, the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. As Emerson put it, who you are, shout so loud, I can't hear what you say. So let's sit quietly. May all beings know their true beauty. May all beings see through the self-illusions. May all beings be free. May our practice be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. May all beings be happy. Thank you for hanging in there. I guess it may not feel like midnight to you, but anyway, thank you for your uh, for your support and uh, thanks for your practice. And please, uh, please, what, what was the please? Oh, please drive safely and sleep well. And hopefully, I'll see you next time. Thank you.